the Lord has gifted you guys with them. Uh, we're going to look in, in 1 Kings chapter 6. We're going to continue our series through the rise and fall of King Solomon. And as you turn to 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, just to quickly summarize, chapter 1 was the passing on of the crown from David to Solomon. And Solomon's ad- brother Adonijah tried to steal the crown, but really it goes to Solomon. Chapter 2, then, Solomon secures peace in the kingdom by eliminating threats of the kingdom. Chapter 3, God gifts Solomon with wisdom, and then he applies that wisdom to a situation with two prostitutes. If you remember that, uh, both or one of their babies died, and then she switched the baby with the other mom in the middle of the night. Pretty crazy stuff. Well, Solomon is given supernatural wisdom. And wisdom is the application of knowledge. And really, godly wisdom, biblical wisdom, is the application of biblical knowledge, of God's truth, of the word of God. So Solomon is the wisest person that has ever lived because God's word is the true truth, right? It is the absolute truth. It's the ultimate truth. Um, And so he's the wisest person. Chapter 4, he uses his wisdom and he orders the kingdom. And then peace and prosperity comes Um, in the land. God gives and fulfills his promises to Abraham by giving them the land. They have peace. They have rest. But God's redemption has not yet been complete because he still dwells in a tent. Um, And so Solomon's like, I need to build the house of the Lord, the temple. And he hires out a Gentile king, right? Jew and Gentile will come together to build this temple or God's house, right? Um, And they're they're put to work. And in chapter 6, we come to the construction of the temple. So the main theme tonight is on the temple, the temple of God. So I'm going to read this passage. I might skip through some sections. It's very, really laborious, a lot of details, but I'll try to summarize it, summarize it as best as possible. Um, so chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, He, that is Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. So it's about 90 feet long, okay, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. So the the gym is actually 90 feet long, just about, all right? But it's 56 feet long and only 30 feet high. So temple was taller than the gym, not as wide as the gym, but as long as the gym. Okay, that's the temple right there. All right, that's that's what those are. I had to ask John Martin about that. So I'm right. (laughs) Uh, Verse three, the vestibule, which is kind of like the porch in front of the nave of the house is 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows and recessed frames, and he also built a structure. Remember, they didn't have electricity, so they needed windows, and that only came through the the Lord's light, the sun. Against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story, the first story, was five cubits broad. The middle story, or the second story, was six cubits uh, broad, and the third story was seven cubits broad. 
For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. So imagine if our gym on the outside of the gym were built another structure just around it. Those are the side rooms, and that's where the three stories are because the temple would be like walking into the gym. It's that tall. Um, okay, so that's what's going on there. If you have, who has an ESV study Bible? Anyone? Perfect. All of you have a great picture in your Bible to show your life groups later of what it must have looked like, okay? Um, it should, if you have the, the full ESV st- uh, study Bible. All right? Or you can just look it up online. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Don't get lost with the picture. <laughs> I know it's hard to visualize. Verse 7. The house was built. It was with stone prepared at the quarry. So that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house. And one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it and made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high. And it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. And this is the central main point of this passage verse 11 there is a divine interruption here there's all the building stuff and then the word of the lord comes to solomon in the midst of the building project the lord says verse 12 concerning this house that you are building if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments obey keep and walk in them. Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father in second Samuel seven. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people, Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Now verses 15 and on go to describe. So let me rewind here. Verses two through 10 describe the exterior of the temple, okay? And then verses 15 all the way to 36 describe the interior. And so the key word in this section, I'm not going to read it, is the word gold, okay? Gold appears 11 times. So within the holy place, is it's overlaid with gold, and there's carvings of flowers and gourds and fruit and so it kind of looks like the garden of eden that's the point okay but look in verse um, 22 uh sorry starting in 21 starting in verse 20 all right sorry look at this the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long 20 cubits wide 20 cubits high it's a perfect cube he overlaid it with pure gold verse 21 and solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold he overlaid the whole house with gold you get the point it keeps going all the way on and even into verses 32 and 35 he overlays all the inside of the temple is covered in gold and it's a beautifully architecture. It's intricate. There's carvings of fruit and pomegranates and flowers and and cherubim are carved. These are these massive uh, angel-looking creatures. They have faces like a man, but they're creatures that God created. If you remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, he sent a cherubim, right, to to guard. And that's kind of the idea. In the Holy of Holies, where the altar is, there's two cherubim there. That's verses 23 Uh, sorry, verses uh, 23 through 29. And so 
He, everything is laid with gold. It is an expensive work here. Empty, it should be on MTV Cribs, right? It'd be pretty awesome to be there. Uh, verse 37, let's end it. Um, it says, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth, eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Okay. If you were given a chance to build your own house, what would you include? How would you build it? What would it look like? Your answer would tell me a lot about who you are. Some of you are like, I would love to have like a hobbit hole. And I'd be like, you love Lord of the Rings. Amen. You love Lord of the Rings. Claustrophobic. Some of you are like, I want a mansion on Malibu Beach in California. I'd be like, you're a Marvel fan, Tony Stark, right? That's what you like, you know. No, your, your house, however you would want to build your house, would tell me a lot about who you are. As a person, where you live, your status, all those things. Well, in the same way, the temple is going to draw out some things about God. We learn a lot about God by looking at his house. And so we're going to learn five things. So what does the house of God teach us? First, it teaches us the redemption of God. The redemption of God. Chapter 6 starts with a chronological note, 480 years after the Exodus, and it ends with a chronological note. It took seven years to build it, right? Now, you could be like, okay, why does he put that? Well, it's really, it's more than just chronological notes, more than just time. This is an important event. The temple building is one of the most significant events in the history of God's people, And we know that because of what it links it to. Look at verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So the temple is linked to God's redemption of his people out of Egypt. Does anyone know how long God's people were in bondage in Egypt? 430 years. They're in bondage. And so the story of God... Uh, uh, redeeming his people is really the story of him freeing his people, saving his people, redeeming his people out of bondage, and then making him his own, his own people, and then leading them to the promised land. That's the rest of the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. And so from that time where God saved his people, freed his people, they were wandering. They were wandering, right? They didn't have a place. Well, finally, in 1 Kings chapter 4, God fulfills his promise, gives them the land. And there's peace and rest, but their salvation is not complete. It's not complete until God permanently dwells with them. Because God was dwelt, dwelt where? In a tent, a portable tabernacle. Now imagine you had a family member coming over to stay aunt, uncle, and they're like, yeah, we have an extra room, but we're going to put you in a tent outside in the backyard. (laughs) How would they feel about that, right? It would show you how much you value that person, right? You're going to be in a tent. Well, God told them to make the tabernacle, so it was God's will, but God needed, well, he didn't need, 
He told them and promised them that I will dwell with you permanently in the land. And that's what the temple, temple signifies. It signifies rest. It signifies the end of their salvation in a, in a sense. Think about it. If you're a Christian here today, what you confess is that you were once enslaved to sin, just like Israel was enslaved to Egypt. But God, by his grace, redeemed you, saved you out of that sin. He's given you rest now, but this is not your home. You are wandering. You're a pilgrim. Until Jesus comes back or you see him and you, and you dwell with God. Really, for all of eternity and the new heavens and new earth. That's what the temple signifies. And so that's what we learn first is, is the redemption of God. God is being faithful to his promise. After 480 years, God is faithful. And so can you claim that? God is faithful despite my trials Despite my hardships, despite the book of Judges, right, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, though they sinned against God, God is still faithful. God will complete the work in which he started. That's the lesson there. Can you say that? Great is thy faithfulness. All that I need, you have provided. Great is thy faithfulness. How about now? Is that hard for you to say? You may not be going through any trials. It may be very easy for you to say. But what about when you don't get accepted into that school? Or that friend turns on you? And that bad breakup? Great is your faithfulness. Can you still say that? See, everything in this life will leave you and forsake you, but God will not. He is faithful to complete the work he started. So that's what we learn. That's what the temple means. It's redemption. This is good news, which then leads to the second reason why it's good news. The temple signifies the presence of God, the presence of God. This is why this is such a significant event, because God is doing what uh, we were created to do, which is to dwell with him. God is going to fill the temple and dwell with his people. So point number two, the temple signifies the presence of God. I hate being away from Caitlin. I really do. And like a week ago, I was in California, but she left for California before me. And so I get home after work and it, it's just boring in my house because I like to be with her. And it's her birthday today, by the way. Um, and it's, she's so fun. She lights up my world. She's my best friend. And when she's not around, I starve. <laughs> uh, things get dirty and I help clean I help I don't help cook as much she's a good cook so I just let her do that but uh you know things get dirty I'm disheveled I'm not organized my life just gets boring and cold and I miss her right when she's gone she gives me life but that does not compare and maybe maybe you have a friend that's like that in, in a way that they just Whenever you're with them, they bring your levels of joy up. You love being with that friend or that person. But whoever that is, it does not compare to the everlasting life and light that the presence of God brings to mankind. It does not compare. God can take Caitlin. I have enough in him. His presence is what I need. His presence is what you need. Because in his presence and with him, there is life. He is like the sun. Take the sun away. What do you got? You got everything dies. It's dark and cold. And in the same way with you spiritually, when you are not 
in union with Christ, when you are not near to him and he is far from you, your spiritual life is cold, it's dark, and some of you, you've never been in the presence of God, you don't have the presence of God, and you are dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1. You need what you were made for. That is God's presence. And that's what the temple signified. Sin separates us from God. (laughs) The temple signified life and rest. That's what we need. And so how can we experience God's presence today? We got to build a temple, right? I'm just kidding. No. (laughs) No. We need to go on some spiritual journey to just, you know, find God's presence somewhere out there. Or listen to our favorite worship song and get really close to God emotionally. Is that where God's presence is? God can use that. How, how can we experience God's presence? Only by the grace of God. See, when God saves a sinner through Jesus Christ, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us. Even even Jesus said this, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me and will keep my word, if anyone loves the gospel, loves me, loves my word, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The promise of the gospel is that, yes, you receive forgiveness and rest, but you receive the Holy Spirit that enters into you. And so if you're a believer, you have the living God in you now. And his presence is in his word. And the Holy Spirit uses the word and uses prayer and the church to communicate his presence to us. To experience the benefits of our union with Christ. That's what you need. You need Christ, therefore, and therefore you receive the Holy Spirit. And he will come and dwell with you. Those of you that do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you are separated. You have no spiritual life. And that's what you need. That's what the temple signified. When God dwells with his people, there is spiritual life. Now, chapter 6, now it's pretty much just verse 1 right there. This is why it's such a big event. And then, as I said, chapter 2, or verse 2 through 10, goes to explain the exterior of the temple. And the main thing that you need to get, other than the size of the gym, is that the temple was made into three uh, concentric spheres, okay? So there's the outer courts, and the outer courts, Jew and Gentile can go and worship the Lord. Remember David's song, A Day in Your Courts is Better Than Elsewhere, right? It's because that's where they worshiped. But then there's the holy place and the inner courts where only the priests were allowed to go. No no Israelite ever went or Gentile ever went into the holy place or the inner court. And then within the holy place is the most holy place, right? So there's these three circles here. There's the outer courts where everyone can go, the holy place where the priest can go, and then the most holy place where the great high priest or the high priest goes once a year to make atonement for sin. What does this show us? About God. Why can't people go into the holiest place? How come no Jew ever saw the interior of the temple? Unless they're a priest. It's because point number three, the temple signifies or shows us the holiness of God. We sang it, holy, 
Holy, you are holy, Jesus, you alone. What does that mean? What is the holiness of God? How come Jew and Gentile could not go into the holy place or the most holy place? Because where God dwells, there also dwells his holiness. God is holy. And what does that mean? It means that he is set apart. He is completely other than us. He is morally uh, pure. He is clean of all sin. He's incorruptible. His presence is incorruptible. Therefore, since we are sinners, we can't enter in. Someone has to do it for us. And that's the priest who would do that in the Old Testament. But he would have to make atonement for our sins, wear the priestly garb. He'd have to wash in the basement, make sure, or basement, the basin, the basin. <laughs> he'd have to wash. He'd have to go through all these rituals, make atonement for his family before he could even enter into the holy place. And even the high priest who would go in once a year, they would tie a rope to him with bells so that if he went in there and was not clean, did not follow the protocol, the Lord would strike him down. And then they would hear the bells on the rope like Johnny just died. And then they would pull him out. Because God cannot dwell. Yes, it's his presence, but God cannot dwell with morally impure things. He is so pure, so other. And this is a lesson for us because a lot of modern Christians today, the way that they view God is like this hippie, genie, kind of loving, you know, all like come to me. You know, and just like it's chill with anything. and doesn't care with how you live. But God is holy. Read Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And when people come into God's presence, they are flattened. They are flattened by God's holiness. Yes, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. Yes, our God is someone that you could run with confidence and joy to but not without reverential fear because he is so other than us. He is not like us. Do not domesticate God. Do not domesticate God. He is not like us. He is other than us. And we need to have a high view of God. Holiness, holiness. He is morally pure. That's what the temple would have showed the people. Continuing on in verses 14, then we're going to skip the Lord's verses 11 through 13. And so verses 15 all the way through 36, then describe the interior. And what was the main word that I drew out for you guys? Gold, right? Gold. And this this section signifies point number four, the glory of God. The temple displayed the glory of God. The glory of God. No Israelite ever saw the interior, like I said. So imagine that. Imagine you are sitting on your couch and you are watching Fixer Upper. And they show this disgusting house. And Joanna Gaines is like, man, we got to fix this. Is that her name? Right? Okay. Right? Magnolia Market. And like, we need to fix this up. Chip makes a few jokes. I really like the show. It's a good show. And... uh, Right, they're like, this is what we're going to do. This is the design. They sit down with them. It's great. They start doing uh, all, the, all the work on it. But then the show just ends right there. And they never show you the finished product. Like, this is the worst show ever, right? Well, that's what's pretty much, that's what happened. But in 1 Kings 6, God in his grace at least gives his people what it would have looked like. And it was beautiful. It was aesthetically beautiful. 
Because God is the standard of beauty. A lot of people say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No, you don't ascribe beauty to things. God ascribes beauty to things. He is the ultimate standard of beauty. And the temple showed that. It was beautiful and it was costly. Right? And you're like, why don't we use the gold to feed the poor or whatever? You know, some people make that argument. It's like, this is God's house. This shows his, his beauty, his splendor, his majesty. That's what it's portraying about God. And that's what God's glory is. The glory of God is the splendor and brilliant beauty that shines through all of his divine attributes, especially in and through Jesus Christ. God is glorious. He's a glorious God. And we see this manifested in in Jesus in the book of John. When Jesus, the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the word, Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us and templed among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is God's radiant glory. And so the temple was built in such a way to display God's glory. Now, what, how does this apply to you? Well, in the same way, Many of you, you're walking through life saying, what is my purpose in life? What is my aim? What am I supposed to do right now with my life? What's your purpose? You were made. What were you made for? You were made, first and foremost, to glorify God, to display, to portray, to reflect God's glory in all the earth. You are made in God's image. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3 calls us, our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in the new covenant, by being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we, like the temple, are made to reflect God's glory. That is your purpose. And so many of you walking through life right now, you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do with school right now? How am I supposed to live my life? What's my purpose? Your purpose right now in your school is to work hard for the glory of God. You just go through a breakup. What's your purpose? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to glorify God through that. My parents, I'm having a rough time with my parents. I don't know what to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to glorify God. That's your aim. Sports. What's your goal in sports? Is it a trophy? No. It's to glorify God. And your hobby. What's your ultimate aim? What's your your goal? It's to reflect the glory of God. And how do we reflect the glory of God? And that everything we do, this is how we do it. We do pointing to Jesus. We point our lives towards Jesus. We point others towards Jesus. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the temple of God, as we read in Revelation 21. That is how we bring glory to God. That is your purpose. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Any other pursuit is lesser than that. And when, any, when anything becomes an ultimate thing, like glory of yourself, glory, glory in your career, glory in your sexual identity, that's called idolatry. 
God is the one who ascribes identity. He's the one who defines you. And you are made. Your purpose is to glorify God in all that you do. That's how practical this is. That's what the temple signifies. And how do we know how to glorify God? Praise him for giving us his revealed will in his word. And that's exactly what I want to look at in this last section is the word of God. It's the climactic main point, the main section here, which is verses 11 through 13. And the last thing that we see here is the promise of God. So the redemption of God, the presence of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, and the promise of God. How do we glorify God and experience the blessings of salvation, the blessings of his presence? What does the Lord say? Verse 12. Concerning this house that you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then... If you do this, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among you, among the children of Israel, and I will, forsake, and I will not forsake my people, Israel. A lawyer in Luke 10 comes up to Jesus to test him. And he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know the commandment of the Lord. How do you read it? And he says, the commandment is, I must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, if you do that, you will live. If you obey, then, so if you obey, then you will live. If you disobey, then you will. There you go. That applies to us. If then. So what is spiritual death in this situation? Spiritual death is that God's presence leaves his people. Which we know happens. Solomon breaks the covenant. He breaks God's law. And the people are split into two kingdoms. And ultimately they are banished from the land. They're banished from the promised land, out of God's presence. Does that remind you of another story with an if-then proposition? Adam, I've given you all the trees of the fruit. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, then you will surely die, right? Flip it, though. If you do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will. Exactly. Israel is a type of Adam. And we are all under the same law. The way to experience God's presence, if you want eternal life, is to obey. Is to do what this command says. Which is so interesting because right in the middle of this building project, God's like, I could care less about my house. What I care about is your obedience. But this presents a problem to us because how did Israel do? They failed. How have you done this week? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself? Perfectly? Perpetually? And personally? No. This passage, though it's a high moment in the life of Israel, it's really the beginning of the end 
because they break the covenant. And just like them, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We need a better king. We need a better temple. How are we to dwell with God? We sin, therefore we're banished. We deserve hell for our sin. And this is why the Old Testament is just leaning forward to the new. When Jesus comes on the scene, right? And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And turn, turn to John 2 real quick. Real quick, John chapter 2. And why did Jesus come? He's the last Adam. He's the new Adam. He's the better Israel. Why did Jesus come? What's his mission? John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 18. So we know the bad news. We have not obeyed. We have not kept. We have not walked. Therefore, we will not be established. God will not dwell with us and he will forsake us. But then Jesus comes and what does Jesus do for us? Verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But what, he was, but what was Jesus talking about? He was talking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus is Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. He is our hope. He is our la the last hope. And he is the one who did obey, who did keep, who did walk. And then he was forsaken by God on the cross as he bore your sin and the wrath that you deserved. And in your place, he died. But he rose again, promising life and forgiveness to all who come to him by faith. So that now we can enter into the holy of, holiness, of holies with boldness. Why? Because we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We can come and stand boldly. And he is our great high priest who enters in for us. But not only our great high priest, but also our sacrifice. Jesus is the last Adam. He is our substitute. And because of him, we now receive the Holy Spirit. And I want to live with it, leave, leave you with this. How do we respond to such a great salvation? Here's the reality check for you if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Therefore, you are to pursue holiness. You are to pursue him, to walk in holiness. And then 1 Corinthians 6. How are you to live our life? How are you to respond? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of Jesus. And so how do we respond? It says, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God. Have you received the presence of the Holy Spirit? Have you received forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ? Or are you just on the outer court separated from God? Without him, spiritually dead and darkened. Without hope. Without joy without significance, 
without satisfaction? If so, turn to Jesus, the one who, was made, who made flesh, who came and died for you, and who now promises you new life and a new family, and that one day he will bring you all the way home, and you will dwell with him in the house of the Lord forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. That's your promise. That's what you cling to. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of 1 Kings 6. Let's pray.